and there might be a hunger and a thirst in our hearts today. And Lord, as we open up your word, Father, would you open up our hearts to know you more? Lord, it's been a busy week for many of us. Our brains are a bit fuzzy and tired. Lord, would you give us strength? Would you give us the faculties to listen and be attentive? And Lord, would you have your way in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. Great job, Sam. Okay. Can you all see the screen? Everybody be able to read that? That's great. So my whole sermon's on the screen today. So if we lose the screen, I'm in big trouble. I just wanted to um, do a bit of revision for those of you who are with us for the first time today or have missed the past couple of weeks. We've been doing a series called uh, What Does It Mean to Be Born Again? And we're using the verse when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and he said to Nicodemus, to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again out of water and out of spirit. Brad, can I have the... Thanks, mate. Beautiful. I get to drive now. And we've been looking at four steps, four definite separate steps that the New Testament and the apostles set up as the process of being born again out of water and out of spirit. The first is that we repent. Second is that we believe. Third is that we be baptized in water. And the fourth is that we receive the Holy Spirit. And those four things connect us with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the New Testament and apostolic tradition is that all four steps are necessary to be born again. Okay, all four steps are entering the kingdom of God. And what has happened in our teaching over generations is that we've been taught that salvation happens at an instant in time somewhere in the process. But that's not biblical teaching. The biblical teaching is to be born again is a process and it happens after four distinct things occur in our life. Our conversion and God's regeneration take time. And they take time because we need to repent, we need to be baptised in water, and we need to receive the Holy Spirit. And the question we should be asking is, not is our baby born? Not do we have someone saved? We should be asking, is that new believer fully alive? Have they got everything that they need to live the Christian life? Have they experienced all that they need to experience? Are they, are they on a platform ready to live the life that God has for them? The first thing we need to do is repent. Peter replied, repent and be baptised, every one of you and me, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that verse has all four. But the point is, the first thing we need to do is repent. What is repentance? It's cutting the umbilical cord of our past. It's saying we're going to kill off our old life and we're going to enter into a new life free of sin, free of allegiance to Satan. He has no more power over us. I'm not in the kingdom of darkness anymore. I'm in the kingdom of God. Sin is not my master anymore. I'm free to live the Christian life. And we sever the past. The barrier that once separated us between God and us is gone. It's dealt with. It's forgiven. And we enter into a peace with God. Second thing we must do is have faith or belief. If we confess with our hearts, with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, we shall be saved. It's a step of faith. So our biological life started with a conception. 
And our faith life starts with a conception. When we hear the gospel, we hear the, the good news of Jesus dying for our sin. And on the basis of that belief, we then have faith in action. We do certain things that demonstrate that we actually believe those things to be true. We hear about Jesus and we believe that he's the son of God, that he died for us and that he has things that we need to do out of obedience and we step out in faith. Not a moment of faith, not a decision I made 25 years ago, a life that goes on, present continuous tense. I go on believing in Jesus and because I go on believing in him, therefore I live in faith in him. And so my faith just builds and builds and builds and builds. And I have a faith relationship with God moment by moment, day by day, week by week. My faith yesterday doesn't get me into heaven. My faith today doesn't get me into heaven tomorrow. I live in faith. I abide in Christ in a daily relationship with him. That's new teaching to some people. The third thing we need to do is be baptised in water. Listen to this verse from Peter. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you. Water baptism is so much more than just an act of getting in water and going under and coming back up. It's part of the salvation process. We need to see it as an incredibly spiritual and important part of being born again. Water baptism is our spiritual bath. It's where we get cleansed up. All the muck of our past and our sin gets washed away. It's the symbolism of that happening. And baptism deals with our past and it washes it down the drain effectively. But water baptism is also a burial. It's where we identify with Jesus Christ. So Jesus was crucified, he was buried. And our water baptism is our crucifixion of our past and it's our burial. It's the re reenactment of Easter in our life, not Jesus' life. The same things that happened to him happened to us. We need to be crucified. I've been crucified with Christ. We need to be buried. We leave our old life behind and then we move into the third part, fourth part of the process is the infilling of the Spirit of God. And theologically, this is where we often come undone. Remember, in my biological birth, I was born into Adam, into his sin and into the kingdom of darkness. But when we're born again, we're born into Jesus, the second Adam, and into his life and into the kingdom of God. So we're looking today at the fourth step of being born again, being born, born out of spirit. Wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John, the Bap John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit being receiving the third person of the Trinity is like an anointing. It's a consecration. It's a setting apart by God of that person's life to serve him full time. The same as the Old Testament priests used to be consecrated. It's God's way of saying this person is set apart to serve me and walk with me. We are receiving the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. This is our resurrection. This is our new life, our empowering from on high to be able to do the things God wants us to do. And it's a reenactment of Pentecost in our lives. So the same things that happen in history, objective to us, become subjective. We experience the same things that Jesus did. And then the Bible goes on to talk about all the analogies of the Holy Spirit 
trying to explain to us what it means to receive the third person of the Trinity. We are talking about theology. Ology means knowledge, theo means God. So we're trying to understand the most difficult thing in the whole of the universe, to get our heads around God. And what's happened in Christian circles is we've tried to make that a simple thing, and it's just not. Trying to understand God and who he is and how he operates and how he indwells us and what that indwelling means is a concept that's going to stretch us. The moment we try to dumb that down, we end up minimizing the Trinity and the and the Godhead, and we can't do that. It's a dangerous place to go. And so in the scriptures, the signs of laying on hands was the way that the Spirit of God was communicated to people. So the apostles would go around, make sure people had repented, make sure they had believed in Jesus, make sure they were water baptized, and then they would look for a, a physical expression, a manifestation, a sign to show that that person had received the Holy Spirit. It all makes sense? So the, the, all four of those steps are acts of faith. I do something, I repent, God forgives me. I believe, God gives me faith. I get baptized in water, God cleanses me. I say, God, I want your Holy Spirit, God pours him out into our life. They're all acts of faith. They require faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. What we do at a biological birth, if you're a midwife, is you check that that baby's got all its fingers, all its toes, it's breathing properly, it's fully alive. What we need to do in birthing Christians into the, into the faith is make sure they understand these four steps. And the moment that people don't, we get into error or we set people up to fail in their walk with God. And that's what's happened. Denominations have grabbed one of those four things and said, this repentance is more important than receiving the Spirit. Or this believing in Jesus is more important than water baptism. And that creates error because all four are necessary. All four are mandated by God. And the book of Acts is the outworking of all those four happening. Now what happens if I am overemphasized in receiving the Spirit is that I look at other denominations or people that haven't had that experience and I get judgmental. Well, you don't have what I have. Okay, And we get into error because we see conservative people are dead and, and we might see that Pentecostal people um, are unbalanced. But let's get rid of all the labels. Let's let them die a natural death. They shouldn't be there. The point is we need to read Scripture. The Scripture says repent. The Scripture says believe in Jesus Christ. The Scripture says be baptized in water. And the Scripture says receive the Holy Spirit. Four definite things, and we need to know that they've happened in our life. What happens if we get away from biblical language is that we get away from biblical truth and New Testament concepts, and we end up in error. Let me give you an example. You've probably seen or maybe experienced or heard the phrase, um, how do I put it, slain in the spirit. Have you heard that phrase? Okay, you've been slain in the spirit. So someone prays for someone and they fall over and we call that slain in the spirit. Now I have a problem with that, not the necessarily God touching people, but the only time in scripture that phrase slain in the spirit is used is in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit kills Ananias and Sapphira. So you see the error? 
It's not that God's doing something wrong here, but we've put a label on something that isn't biblical. And so we've got error. We've got to use biblical language and biblical context. And if we take away all the denominational teachings and just come back to God's word and say, what does God's word say? We eliminate all the problems. Because our denominations teach us certain things that they believe are truth, but they're not necessarily. The word of God has to be the benchmark. It has to be the thing that we all come back to. Don't believe what I teach you. Challenge me to show you from the word of God where it's truth. And if I can't do it, chuck it in the rubbish bin. Challenge people to show you in the word of God where truth is truth. If we all do that, God will be very pleased, I'm sure. So what happens if we miss out on one of those steps of being born again? We've actually missed out on something critical in our lives. And we need to go back and make sure they happen. If we don't repent properly, we're still entangled in sin. If we don't believe in Jesus, we won't have a life of faith. Just putting 10% of our tithe in in a box every week will be a humongous thing for us because we don't understand faith. We don't believe in Jesus and his provision and his power. So we need to believe. We won't live lives of faith. If we don't go through water baptism, we haven't had a spiritual cleansing. We've got to do the things God has called us to do. And if we don't receive the Holy Spirit, all we've done in the first three steps is create a vacuum in our life, got rid of all the bad stuff, and left ourselves a vacuum that needs to be filled. And it needs to be filled with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So receiving the Holy Spirit is not the same as repentance, okay? Let's read this passage. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road to the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples of John the Baptist and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no. We haven't even heard that the Holy Spirit is being poured out on people. So Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? Oh, we had John's baptism. Well, Paul replied, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. John the Baptist told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, the disciples of John were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied there are about 12 men in all. When Paul turned up, the only thing they'd done is repented. And so he asked them exploratory questions to find out about their faith. And they said, we don't know about Jesus. We don't know about the Holy Spirit. And so they only had the first box ticked. And so Paul went back and said, you need to be baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's tick believe. Let's tick baptized. And then he laid hands on them and prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit, the four steps. Receiving the Holy Spirit is not the same as water baptism. Many denominations believe that when you're baptised or you're sprinkled at that moment, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's not borne out in Scripture. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Yes, they'd repented, 
Yes, they believed in Jesus. Yes, they'd been baptised in water, but still to that point, the last box hadn't been ticked. They had not received the Holy Spirit. So when Peter and John came and observed that group of people, they said something's missing. Inquired, responded, prayed, and the Holy Spirit was poured out. Here's the big one. Receiving the Holy Spirit is not the same as believing in Jesus. This is where a lot of evangelical churches come off the rails. Many Christians think that by believing in Jesus, I automatically receive the Holy Spirit whether anything happened to me or not. That is illogical. Let's go back. Why would Peter and John place hands on people to receive the Spirit if they've already believed? It would be a pointless exercise. If they'd believed and received the Spirit already, then why would they come along and say, we need to pray for you? Why would Paul lay hands on them and pray if by believing in Jesus and being baptised, they'd already received the Spirit? You see the problem? There are four distinct steps. This is the passage a lot of people use. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Okay? That verse does not imply the moment I believe in Jesus, I receive the Spirit. It does not, it, grammatically, that is not what it implies. It's talking about a bigger context of moving into everything God has for us. So receiving the Holy Spirit at the time of believing is not a biblical principle. It's not. Don't believe me? Read your word. It's there. There isn't one single case of anyone receiving the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and not knowing it. When Peter went to the house of Cornelius, he shared the gospel with him. Halfway through here, preaching the gospel, what happened? Cornelius started to speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit didn't even need a human to come and pray. He just touched that man. God can do what God wants when he wants. But Peter was shocked. The Holy Spirit's been poured out on Gentile people. What's going on here? This is radical stuff. This wasn't the plan. This isn't what wasn't supposed to happen. So listen to this carefully. Receiving the Holy Spirit is the acid test. It is actually the proof that God has accepted you. Repenting doesn't prove that God accepts me. Me believing in Jesus doesn't mean that God accepts me. Going through the waters of baptism doesn't prove that God accepts me. The only thing that demonstrates that God has accepted me is receiving the Holy Spirit. That's the seal. That's the branding. That's the mark. That's the deposit. That's the guarantee. Now, here's why it becomes a problem. Much of what happens in our theology is that we've transferred receiving the Holy Spirit to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. But you cannot receive Jesus into your heart. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is forever God and man in a body. When we go to heaven, we will do the same thing as Thomas. We will touch his hands. We will touch his side. We will see the nail prints. He was the lamb that was slain. God became flesh. And when Jesus was resurrected up out of the tomb, 
whoever he became physically, spiritually, emotionally, is our guarantee of what we will become when we die and we are clothed in immortality. Do you understand that? Remember, Jesus could pass through walls. He could do things he couldn't do before his resurrection. He had a resurrected, immortal body. And we will have the same thing. He's our guarantee. But what we've done is we've assumed that we can receive Jesus into our heart. That is not biblical language. You cannot. Jesus said to the disciples, look, you're not getting it. I've got to go back to heaven. Because if I go back to heaven and I sit down at the right hand of the Father, all authority and all power will be given it to, to me. And then I can distribute that through my spirit, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, to everyone because I'm not omnipresent anymore. That's the price Jesus paid for being a human. He sacrificed that. But by his spirit, he could empower every one of us so that Jesus can be with us. Now, in the New Testament times, you could receive Jesus. He could knock on your door. You could open the door and say, come in, Jesus. But when he ascended into heaven, that dynamic changed. And he said, I must pour out my spirit on you. I'll send another just like me, the paraclete, the advocate, the helper, all sorts of titles. Now, here's what I want you to understand. For the Old Testament prophets and men and women of God, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was something they longed for. Remember, they lived in a dispensation of time, an era of time where they didn't have the indwelling spirit. They have to go through these complicated processes, sacrifice a lamb, come to the tabernacle, all these processes that didn't allow them to have intimacy with God. And God's new plan was to change that radically. And God was saying through the Old Testament prophets, a time is going to come, a day is going to come in human history when I'm going to pour out my flesh on all people, men, women, children. They'll dream dreams. They'll prophesy. Things will happen to them that mankind has no understanding of. We see the same in Ezekiel. I'll give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. Same in Isaiah. And we get this future look at what God is going to do in the Old Testament. They only got glimpses of what God was going to do, but they were hankering for this time. They thought that the Messiah would come and set up a political empire and save them. Jesus came to pour out his spirit on a church and build a church against which the gates of hell would not prevail. Nobody had any idea that the gospel message would go to the Jewish people and then to the whole world. No one had that mindset. And so we see that start to happen. And the radical shift started to change from God dwelling amongst us, like in the Old Testament, the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke and God being with them in, in the tabernacle and carrying that around to God indwelling a human being. That is a radical concept, a radical concept that the third person of the Trinity would enter into a human body and the human body would become the temple of God, not a building. Your life and my life would be the dwelling place of God. Divinity inhabiting humanity. That is astounding. That the gift that God gave to you and to me was him very self to dwell in us. 
And the whole point of the Holy Spirit being poured out onto us is so that God could build a church, a group of people like you and me that are no better than one another. I'm not any more filled with the Spirit than the next person. We all have intimacy, fellowship, empowering. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives where? In us. How would we know that? Because of some words written on paper? No, because of something that happens in our life. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's a cosmic supernatural being. And if a cosmic supernatural being comes and enters your body, don't expect it to be normal. Don't expect it to be understandable. Don't put barriers on God and say, God, you can only do this. God can do what he wants. He's God. It is abnormal. It is supernatural. And as we read the book of Acts, that's what happened. And for some reason in our dynamics of theology, we're trying to take that away from God and make him less than who he really is. That is incredibly offensive to God, to say to God, you can come on my terms and you can give me what I'm willing to accept. You can't do it that way. You've got to accept God as who he is. God had a plan to build a church, to pour out his spirit till the fullness of the Gentiles came in. Then the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and the dead in Christ shall rise and we will be gathered to him in the air and then seven years of tribulation will come and the world will be the most horrible place. God had a plan and we are right in the middle of that plan and drawing to the end of it. Since the day of Pentecost till now, God has been pouring out his spirit and if we say no, heaven help us. Heaven help us if we say, God, give, give me this, I'll only take that. How offensive is it to God to say, God, I'm scared of what you would give me? How offensive is it to God to say, God, I don't trust you? Because that's what we're really saying. If we say, God, my heart is not open to you, we are really saying, God, I don't trust you to be who you are. Let's skip that. We're not going to have time. I just want to say a few things. There's no biblical proof to state that the gifts of the Holy Spirit only applied to the apostles and ceased at their death. Does that make sense? That, that's not logical. God did not give 12 men a special anointing. He started with those 12, and those 12 made it their ministry to go through all of Europe and Asia Minor and make sure what they experienced, everybody else got. That was their ministry. They were pedantic about it. It was not for an exclusive group. The gifts of the Spirit are not demonic. That too is irrational. It means that the apostles and the early church were demonic. Do you understand the logic? When I was going through church, I was told that the gifts of the Spirit were demonic. That's just illogical. It doesn't have any, any grounding, any sense. There's no biblical evidence to say that Pentecost outpouring of the Holy Spirit was unique for the apostles. It's what we're supposed to experience and have in our lives. And there's nowhere in Scripture that the gifts of the Spirit are shut down. The only instruction is in Scripture is from Paul to get those gifts into order. Okay? We have to understand it. And here's where I want to finish today. We need to get away from focusing on the manifestations of the gift 
and come back to the privilege that God would see you and I as a vessel into which he could put his spirit. It's as simple as that. God has given you the greatest gift that humanity has ever known. And not only has he given it to us, he said, I'll put it in you. If we are going to say no to that, then I wouldn't want to be that man and woman because I'm denying God. Okay? We don't have any right to question God. We've got to come on his terms. Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you only knew the gift that I'm offering you, if you only understood how precious it is that God would put in these jars of clay a treasure, why wouldn't you want that treasure? Everything within us should be saying, God, I want everything you can give me. I want you. I don't just want you. I need you. Not for what you can do for me, but for who you are. You are God. I've got to come and worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he said he would send his spirit to bless us and enrich us and empower us. I don't care about tongues or prophecies or those sorts of things. Put them to the side. You're receiving God in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what's important. There's nothing normal about it. Here's what I want to finish with today. We need to let God be God in the church and in our personal lives. You know, the scripture's full of, of the apostles writing to the churches saying, you're starting to lose it. Don't quench the spirit. You foolish Galatians, you started out spiritual and now you've become carnal. Don't quench God. If, if we're going to be a church that quenches God, we'll be dry and barren. We need to let God be God. God's ways are not our ways. He does things beyond our comprehension. We need to trust him. We need to move and operate and flow by means of the Spirit. It's the only way to do the church. We've got to be those people. And if we're fearful, if we lack faith in God, who he is, what he would give us, we need to understand that when God gives us something, he doesn't give us something bad. Read the last passage. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find it. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if you ask for a fish, will give him a snake? If us then, though we are evil, know how to good, give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Father in heaven give good gifts to us who ask him? That's it. I can't teach you anything else. That's the end of the road. If we're not hungry for the Spirit of God, if we're not thirsty, if we're not desperate, let's shut the door. Go back to COC. Go back to wherever you came from. There's no point. The other churches will do it better. They've got more, more money, more buildings, more equipment, more resources. If we're not going to be a church that moves with God, in the Spirit of God, empowered by God, then what have we got? What have we got? We've got a club like the Scouts. We'll be dry and empty and thirsty and we'll try to do things in our own strength and we will fail. I want to see officer touched with the power of the gospel. 
And that only comes through a church that's empowered by the Spirit of God. Don't get hung up on the gifts. If we just come and say, God, I want everything you can give me. I don't care what it looks like. If we all come with that attitude, what happens after that's irrelevant. We've just said, God, have your way. And he will do what he wants to do. Whether we stand on our head and spin like tops or who cares? We're pursuing God. And God's saying, ask and seek and knock and be persistent and be fervent and be hungry and go after the things of God. Press in, pursue, ask, keep asking, keep knocking, keep going. Lord, I want more. I need more. I need you. Not what you can do for me. I need you, the Spirit of God. I can't teach it anymore. That's where it hits the road. The gifts are just a manifestation of a supernatural being. It's whether we're hungry for God that really matters. Today, that's the challenge. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? All those things of scripture, the living water, the wind of God, it's refreshing. And the last thing, the Holy Spirit is a dove. Remember that symbolism? What happens when you get close to a dove? Normally runs away, doesn't it? Why? Because it's a gentle thing. This is a gentle process. God, I want everything that you can give me. Invite the Holy Spirit to come and touch you and expect him to touch you by faith. He's promised it. He wants to do it. We just need to be willing and open and available to God and he will have his way. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for that gift that you gave to us, the church, your people, Lord. Since the beginning of time, you knew the day. You knew the day of Pentecost would come, Lord. You knew that era of time through the centuries where people would be immersed in the Spirit of God and anointed and indwelling, and that because of that, we could be people of power and people of promise and people of purpose and people of destiny. And Lord, my prayer for this church is simply that we be hungry for you. Lord, that we would thirst after you. That we would seek first the kingdom of God in the person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, blessed Trinity, almighty God. Lord, would you come and just meet people in their prayer, in their own seat where they are. Just let them pray. Lord, touch me. Give me everything that is yours, Lord. Father, where there's fear in my life, Lord, I want to give it up to you. I want to offer it to you. Take it away, Lord. You gave us a sound mind, and the spirit of fear does not come from God. God is a God of love, a God of blessing. And if he's going to touch you, then it's going to be good. Come and taste and see how good the Lord is. Father, we want to come thirsty. Today I pray you would touch us in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to sing one more song. This morning, God can touch you in your seat. He can touch you wherever you are. That's not the issue. What I want you to do is ask the question, are you really on fire for God? If you're not, the choice is yours. My encouragement is please come and ask God to move in your life.
in a powerful way. Next Sunday at 9.30, we're going to start church half an hour early every week and we're going to pray. And if you're serious about this church being a place where God is going to move and use us mightily, then we need to be serious and pray and press in. Would you do that with me? Would you come and join with us and pray? And let's go with God. Let him have his way in us.